0: okay so welcome back to the community agriculture project podcast we have a special episode cooking up for you today Um, but before we get into that i would just like to give anybody that's new here an introduction to the community agriculture project the project is an accessible and interactive resource directory to connect people with their local agriculture related resources anything from educational resources to CSAs, farmers markets, apprenticeships. And we document and provide insight into local agriculture landscapes and food sovereignty-based projects. So yeah, that's my project. My name is Emily, and we have some special people here on the call today, including two of our summer interns, Uh, that are interning through the Ladders for Leaders program funded by the city of New York. So if you two want to introduce yourself, that would be great.
1: Thank you for the introduction, Emily. Hi, everyone. My name is Irata Tulasulayman. I am currently a senior at Lehman College studying interdepartmental concentration in anthropology, biology, and chemistry. So a little bit of background about me, I was, um, I did an internship with SPH Healthy CUNY to help like students develop programs that are at risk of dropping out of college. I volunteered at several farms, which was also, um, which picked my interest when I was introduced to Emily about the Community agriculture Project. Um, it aligned with some of my goals and We, um, it gives a platform, provides a platform for us to present and discuss these issues and make people aware and discuss how changes can be sought. And as a college student, a change I would like to see in our food system is a shift towards more sustainable agricultural practices. And while my journey, personal journey in agriculture, As a college student has been actively engaging in volunteer work, internships and policy advocacy, I am inspired by so many people, especially this program, to continue to learn, collaborate as we're doing right now and take action to build a more sustainable and equitable system for all. So I will be passing the mic to Ethan, which is my, <laughs> which is my co-worker and an amazing person to work with.
2: Thank you, Arda, for the introduction and thank you, Emily, as well. So I am Ethan and I am a rising senior at the high school for math, science, and engineering at City College. I am very passionate about environmental policies and environmental justice, and I'm I would like to become an environmental lawyer in the future through um, policy work and practicing law. So I believe these steps are really crucial to solve our current climate crisis and create a more equitable food system. And I would like to use policy development to work on that. I'm pretty involved in the environmental sector already. In my school, I lead my environmental activism club And I also am a part of my school's newspaper where I discuss some environmental issues and um, publish it on the newspaper. And outside of school, I'm pretty involved with the Climate and Resilience Education Task Force, where I worked very closely with Alyssa this past year with um, the Youth Steering Committee. And we work on advocating and um, promoting climate education, many climate education in New York. And I'm very excited because Alyssa is gonna be here to talk about more of her experience with climate policies and yeah, I'll pass on to Alyssa.
3: Hi everybody, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to be a part of this podcast episode. My name is Elisa Teles munoz um, I graduated from American University in um, spring of 2022. And uh, while I was in college and up until now, and what I'll continue to do is I've been working with the Climate and Resilience Education Task Force. I am the coordinator, and um, there's various um, areas that we work in, but all are rooted around um, expanding access to climate education in New York. So Ethan is one of our star students on our youth steering committee, so My role there is to mentor and empower the youth um, and we have different committees. Um, So the structure of the program um, varies from year to year. Sometimes the students say like, you know, we're not learning these topics in school. Let's use this as a space to learn about them. But this year it's been more about, okay, we feel like we have some kind of uh, understanding of the crisis, we want to spend our time um, advocating for policy, a uh, climate education policy. Then uh, we have a group of adults and I oversee their projects. These are teachers, so formal or non-formal educators, which I, you know, consider myself a non-formal educator, folks in NGOs, etc. We're writing a climate education bill um, because there have been bills introduced in New York thus far, but none of them, um, meet uh our organization's vision of you know radical transformative education that is useful and um, to students lives because we you know firmly believe that the factor that will influence students lives the most going forward um are all encompassed by uh, climate justice because of aspects of inequality and also the climate crisis So we really believe that um, schools across the board are paying little attention to this issue and we're trying to expand access. So um, really focusing on the the youth empowerment aspect here. Um, Youth don't like to be told that they're the future um, when the future is bleak. So we're trying to foster optimism, reduce eco-anxiety, create intergenerational power, et cetera. So that's a little bit about um, my interests and my position.
0: That sounds really incredible. Um, there's so much that I really like about that, especially the the trying to encourage optimism in people. Um, myself as a scientist and also as the leader of the Community Agriculture Project, like that's definitely one of my goals is to try and keep an optimistic note and create environments um, through community and by relating through food to yeah have some of that more optimistic conversation. So thank you for that intro. Um, And yeah, Ethan, do you want to take it from here?
2: Yeah, sure. So for the first section of this podcast, we want to discuss about the importance of a climate, of of a strong climate education. And Alisa touched base on this already for a bit, but we kind of just want to understand, kind of want to know from your perspective, what should be included in a climate curriculum?
3: Yeah, so it's definitely a broad, a broad question and a broad vision that we have because it's, it's our position that climate education should be happening at all grade levels and all content areas because of the nature of, climate change it doesn't it's not only limited to the scientific aspect of what's going on it permeates every single area of life so there's so many different ways that climate could be included in curricula in a grade of an age appropriate way so for example for for younger for younger grades so say k through or p through p through three that means fostering a relationship with nature and stewardship and mindfulness in terms of cleaning up and generating waste and reusing things and learning to not just throw something away because it's broken but you know getting students to think about how can we fix it and those kinds of cultural things also students learning empathy toward one another um, toward the planet, etc. In my eyes, that's that's a great appropriate way. Then starting to discuss weather and weather systems. That's something that's often talked about in second and third grade classes in, you know, science in the science field. In art classes, starting to depict, for example, what is what is your favorite part of planet Earth, getting students to draw and envision that. Because when you get students to think about these things, then you know that, that translates to care for these things. Um, and learning to do that from a young age is really important. Um, Then once kids start getting a little older, um, I mean, I learned about the climate crisis for the first time when I was nine, and I was having these horrible, horrible visions of, you know, things melting on the street because I didn't understand exactly what that meant. And that's, you know, in my experience, because it wasn't coupled with, meaningful education and it wasn't a teacher that told me that it was just kind of like a one-off like this is what global warming is so really supplementing this fact and reality of life with space to talk about how this makes you feel um you know here are things that we're we're doing about it right now we need to be doing more but here's what's already going on for example that can probably happen from ages 10 to 13. Then starting to learn a little bit more about the complexity and a deep understanding of the crisis at an age appropriate point, maybe after 13. Um, And here's where you can talk about things like transportation and civics and geopolitics and uh, security. What else? Even things like uh, like wood shop and welding starts to happen at this age. This is all part of that as well. This is part of resilience education. Um, the importance of conservation and preservation in, in a historical sense for the United States and across the world. Um, sociology and psychology. Um, public health. Um, national and global public health. Geoengineering, the history of environmental movements um, and the current climate movement and who's leading those and then starting to think about who's being historically um, disproportionately affected by the crisis. Um, Because at this point, maybe when students are 13, they have a baseline understanding of what inequality is historically in, you know, in their history classes and their social studies classes, then you can start adding the level of climate. Um, This is happening But here's the reality of how it's happening and who it's affecting. So even in math classes, you can do regression analysis and um, statistical analysis and mathematical modeling um, and, you know, predictions. So I really do think that systems thinking can happen in every single classroom. And if systems thinking can happen in every classroom, climate is a system and is a part of various systems. So it can't be ignored and it can't be taboo.
0: I have a quick follow-up question to that. So like, I love all of that so much. And one, one thought that came into my mind, actually two comments. So one thought that came into my mind, is just like, it's, it's nice to have that idea of incorporating the language really early. And that's something that you can definitely do with younger kids because it's like, even just thinking about the history of like, we were calling it global warming, and now like it's shifted to climate change and that shift is like kind of hard for people to understand. So I love just like focusing on language and trying to incorporate that. Um, That was one thought that I had. And then also uh, what you were talking about with this really like full and balanced education that's based on systems thinking, like how, how would you i guess approach you know as as people come together in within the united states or around the world from different education systems like for example in the us there's other states that have like a lot of limitations on what they even teach in schools Absolutely. so how does that come into play and um because I was thinking, I was like, one way to approach that might be getting people used to debating and like speaking based in facts and, and data. Um, right. Even a lot of the times that's so relative. But um, yeah, what do you think about that? Well,
3: it's one thing that's really complicated about the United States is that education policy really does happen state by state. Um and that leads to vast inequities across the country in terms of what students are learning by when and what competencies they have at certain ages um and there's so much to discuss about why that happens including the fact that education is funded by property taxes etc um it it's, it's unjust that students across the state do not get the same level of education or learn about the same realities so you know, that is difficult to reckon with when we're working at the state level in New York, for example, um, which in many ways is a very progressive state, um, but we're still having difficulties. But that's not to say that there aren't teachers that are already doing this work. But um, to answer your question, Emily, I think there are things when it comes to transformative capacities that crosscut whatever these state dynamics are. And I'll be referring to um, a paper by um, Christina Kwok, and I'm forgetting the name of the other author. It's called The New Green Learning Agenda. And she, the, the authors um, divide the, what their vision of climate education into skills for green jobs, green life skills, and skills for a green transformation. And these skills for a green transformation like just calling it that might be quote-unquote controversial and could feed into this like culture war that's happening in education in the U.S. But things like coalition building and teaching kids like, okay, like it's it's beyond teamwork, right? Like it's it's teaching kids like how can we actually like build a movement and accomplish something together rather than like something meaningful rather than this is a project and we're working together. It's like, okay, like how can we like, best understand each other's talents and work together to move something forward as a group and and coming to an understanding of like, okay, how do we see this issue? It doesn't have to be climate related. That's an important life skill anyway. Um, Same thing with collective action. Um, Thinking about the future rather, I think this is, this is, I'm about to go on a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is why climate is so hard for people to grasp because, and, and the need for climate action is because this is something that's in the future. Some people see it that way. And like, ah, uh, this is all hypothetical. This is, well, once we pass 1.5 in like a very limited way of thinking, like, well, once that happens, this will happen. It's so limited and in a box when the planet doesn't work that way. And time doesn't work that way. It's, it's not linear like that. Um, so really getting kids to understand the importance of like anticipatory thinking into the future. And like, this is important later, but also right now, because it's important later. And when we're talking about things like environmental justice, like you're, yeah, displacing environmental harms across space. Definitely when communities are impacted differently right now in the moment, but you're also displacing, you're also displacing environmental harms across time. And in order to be able to grasp what that actually means, means that kids have to have this baseline of anticipatory thinking that is also founded upon care for others. So if you don't, if those things like don't jive, then why would you care about the climate crisis? Why would you care that future generations are not going to have the privilege and access to the culture that we have right now? So... Back to your question, these are things that maybe don't need to be labeled as green skills, but are just really important skills that sh- kids should be having across the United States. Systems thinking, um, valuing different cultures and mindsets and ways of knowing, um, you know, working within complexity, being reflexive, and you know, not taking things as a personal attack. For example, like you were saying and suggesting with, with debate, right? Like learning how to understand, like, okay, I can be reflexive because I'm still a young person and I don't know everything. And that's okay, and I don't have to act like I do. Um, these capacities are are necessary, I think.
2: So- I totally, oh, sorry, I can you are, Dante.
1: Very go ahead.
2: Okay, um, I like totally agree with like everything you said, and I especially like. I think it is super important for like climate issues to be taught across all subjects, because in that way they know it's like of like what you said, it's a system issue, and how it requires people of all like people from any like anyone, despite their like occupation, can create an impact on climate on the climate crisis and. Mm-hmm we need like engineers, we need lawyers, we need mathematicians, like we need everyone to bring their skills to, you know, help um, solve this crisis. And I think that's why it's so important to like teach them when they are younger. And I feel like for me, I've never really learned climate change across all my subjects, only been science. And it's really frustrating because I feel it will be super interesting to, like, even read a book in English class that's, like, related to climate change. And I feel like um, it's such a simple thing that, like, teachers can do, but instead they they choose other books, which I guess they are, like, you know, interesting as well, but I feel like students should have the opportunity to get exposure in this field. So I totally agree. Thank you, Alyssa.
3: Yeah, and I'll also add, I think part of what we do, Ethan, in the YSC is, like, one of the things that we employ the most is rhetoric and really making sure that our rhetorical strategies are sound because you can't just say things and you, can, <laughs> you can't just say whatever you want um, in order to get somebody to, to take action, right? Like we can certainly try to go. We've talked to the mayor's office, the governor's office. Um, we, had, we had before this cohort of students had a conversation with the first lady of New Jersey, Um, we have regents, uh, uh, excuse me, meetings with the board of regents members who are the state level policymakers. And if we just go to them and are like, please, or if we're like, you guys are the worst and we're not doing what we need to do. No, like there needs to be some kind of rhetorical strategy here. And we have so many documents, right. And part of what the kids do, like this could totally be used in an English class is, you know, I'm thinking like AP Lang where rhetoric is the whole thing, like analyze, What strategies are being used here? Are they effective? If not, why? Or do you agree with this argument? Yes, no, or qualify, for example. Um, You know, it doesn't need to be like, let's have a debate about if climate change is real. I think we're way past that point already.
1: Yeah, and I also wanted to mention, like, thank you for everything you said. And I definitely agree. And you made some very um, valid points about environmental justice and education. And I really like the point that you made about supplementing all of this with a reality of life, because oftentimes students are young. They have this vague like understanding of the world and how you know things work especially with climate change like you mentioned your experience you thought like going outside the world is melting or, or stuff like that I just think that just having this approach that they're young and very impressionable and also using that to um to responsibly educate them about how biodiversity is a concept it's critical it's a critical factor in our survival um, our ecosystem it's linked to it from the food we eat to the air we breathe like understanding that it's not just about like passing the class or just going through the class it's about grasping this balance that um, keep our planet thriving and it's not just an abstract idea and it directly impacts our life, our uh, food supply and while you might not you know um, realize how much impacts this has, on your daily routine um it affects the animal population and it's just like the availability of produce and how far this um how far this progresses is definitely a wake-up call that um intimately connects us to our natural world
3: yeah I mean on that I think think even sometimes I struggle with the concept of where does everything come from and how was it how did it come to be in my hands or in my home in my refrigerator in this way um and it's it can be really shameful I think when people start to understand those truths um but I that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them we need if in fact it's quite the opposite we do need to talk about those things um, and yeah, like you were saying about like agriculture and food systems, you know, for some students maybe who live in, for example, like a suburban community where things are cookie cutter and all the houses look the same and, you know, it's a very sedentary lifestyle or, or you live in an urban environment that is so far removed from where this agriculture is taking place that if you're not learning about it in school, you're not going to see it in your daily life. So where, when are you going to learn about those things? Um, and, you know, for these, these, are, these are systems that need to become resilient because of, you know, the future impacts and the current impacts of, of the crisis. And in order for those systems to become resilient, there needs to be people who intimately understand that um, from, from a variety of different communities and a variety of different ways of thinking. Um, And that won't happen unless they're learning about it in school.
0: Most definitely. I really appreciate you uh, bringing up all those points. And something that I've been thinking about just listening to everyone speak is like, I don't know when, at what age or at what time I actually became aware of the climate crisis. Like, I honestly want to say that it was probably in college, like actually understanding what was happening and that there was a crisis. Because my environmental education, when I was very young, like in school, I can, before this, before we started this conversation, I was thinking about what what was my earliest uh, exposure to environmental education. And I can think of like one class where we were kind of learning about animals one day, and that's the most that I can think yeah. of. And yeah. And then in college, you know, I uh, I took a lot of science and physics classes and stuff like that. And then even still, it was more in my later college education where I started um, from my mechanical engineering background that I have as an undergrad in college. Like when we started looking at alternative energy systems and I'm like, okay, so we need alternative energy. Why? And then through answering that question, I was then looped around to like, oh, my God, that just like capacity or yeah, the the lengths to what we're dealing with as a crisis. So,
3: yeah. And it started with your education. Um, yeah. I mean, I always tell the story. And I'm sure Ethan's heard it like a billion times at this point is I got into this space I thought I wanted to be a foreign service in the foreign service I didn't know what or why I knew I had a general interest in in liberal arts and in international relations but I didn't know what I wanted to do and I just so happened to take a course on environmental ethics when I was 18 um really I just didn't I didn't even have a foundational like care for the planet at this age and I took this course and I was just like are, are you joking? Like, is this real? I, it completely rocked me to my core. And because it was from an ethical perspective, the central question of the class is, do we have a moral imperative to do something about this if we know that this is a reality? And my answer and takeaway to that class was, I need to change the entire, cur- you know, um, uh, the, the entire cur- projection of my life and career. And that's not to say that everybody needs to have that or will come to that point but that's what education did for me um so imagine a lifetime of learning about these themes bit by bit a cultural shift in the way that we talk about this imagine what that might do you know um for a person's for a person's life um and I had another point on what you were just saying but I'm, I'm forgetting what it was but Anyway, I think I, I,
0: Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I just wanted to say in response to uh the one part of what you just said is like, yeah, I when I realized I definitely was one of those people that I was like, I'm devoting my life. Like the rest of my life is devoted to water protection, soil protection, uh, and just playing any role that I can. Like, you know, even working with Ethan and Irata too, it's just like any way that I can, I'm going to try. And I like your approach, you know, or just the approach in general of incorporating these things slowly and having a, a more cultural shift, because I think that that's more sustainable for the larger population. Like we talk about sustainability in all these ways and um, education and policy sustainability is is necessary too.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the greater concept of a cultural shift is starting to happen because we've seen such radical change in the last 20 years even. Um which you know all of us fit into this generation that I'm discussing right now. But things have moved so quickly. Um you know, I I just watched the Barbie movie, right? And I started talking to my mom about it and she was saying like, you know, after watching that movie and I was thinking about If I had raised you today, it would have been different than the way I raised you 20 years ago. And I think that's a general theme is like, we're, we're, we're discussing truths at such a global level and at such a fast pace and are really evolving and progressing and making mistakes as society, as a society together. um, That I think that a cultural shift is on the horizon. It has to be, it has to be. And that's in terms of care for others and empathy for others. And in terms of civic engagement Um, for folks that are our age, maybe that didn't come, that didn't click until the 2016 election, but um, that's just one example of a turning point and a milestone. Um, And now, you know, I think this year with the extreme, extreme heat and just the mind boggling, news headlines we've been seeing and the records we've been setting, I think this is another turning point. And there's various turning points. The murder of George Floyd is a turning point culturally, not even just in the United States, but globally. Um, And I think, I hope, (laughs) I hope we are getting to a point where we can envision a future that we want and roll up your sleeves and try really hard to realize that future and because of those events that are largely um, negative milestones that have happened like the future that we want is a future where these things don't happen or a future where we care enough about our more than human environment but also human environment enough to support each other when catastrophe strikes
2: I totally agree. And I think that like change should be happening now. And to to bounce off that point, we want to kind of ask you, are there any like current policies in um, New York or the United States that are in place that are like in regards to climate education? I know there's like the, I know New York is pretty like ambitious and like the Climate Act. I was wondering if there are any like education aspects in the Climate Act or any other acts in The New York in New York or the United States that are promoting climate education.
3: Yes, let me just plug in my computer, and I can get into that. Um, So, in New York, the Climate Act that you're discussing, in case um, viewers are are unfamiliar, is one of the most ambitious environmental policies to date, and it spans, you know, it's it's access to clean air and water. And they make these really ambitious um, emissions reductions goals um, in the next in the next couple of decades. And they came out with a scoping plan document that envisions how exactly are we going to get there. Um, and I can find the exact scoping plan. Oh, oh okay. The the CLCPA, the uh, Climate Leadership and Communities Protection Act commits the state to 100% zero emission electricity by 2040 and a reduction of at least 85% below 1990 level GHG emissions by 2050. And so this scoping plan is like, that's great, but how are we going to do that? And it discusses so many different areas like environmental ju- or climate justice and transportation, agriculture, buildings, et cetera, um, waste and Climate education is embedded throughout um, and it's actually pretty explicit The they say like this is it's necessary for there to be. They they, they refer to um, public outreach, general community outreach, but also explicitly to P through 12 climate education campaigns, but also curricula in school. And, you know, we lobbied really hard to get that in there. And now we're trying to make the point of, okay, you said that you were going to do this and you being New York State, so let's do it. So that's one thing. At this New York um, City level, there it's not necessarily a policy, but there is change happening. Um, the mayor's office puts out a city sustainability report every every four years i believe and this year's was called plan plan yc getting sustainability done and they've made the city has made commitments to climate education here and we're starting to see those getting put into place this upcoming school year um 2023-24 yeah which is a big deal and our youth steering committee were involved in doing this advocacy to the mayor's office and in part like because of our advocacy, it's it's in that report. And so, um, and other, uh, many other groups were also advocating for this as well. In, um, in addition to the um, Department of Education Office of Sustainability in New York City. And so what does this mean? This means training teachers, which is a huge element. There's money behind this now. There's um, city funds behind this. And in, I think like another grant, another multi-million dollar grant outside of the city um so it's training teachers creating curricula creating a green um career pathway program for students in career and technical education and i think those are the primary elements of the new york city policy and so this is great oh buffalo is another example um the specifics, I'm not exactly sure, but I do know that they do K through 12 climate education and science classes. And what I was explaining before about, um, about ways that you can integrate this in like an age appropriate way. I learned after having a conversation with the director of science education in in Buffalo public schools, her name is um, Tatiana Merrick. She was explaining like, here's how we do it in Buffalo. And it's, It's uh, stewardship, it's connection to nature, et cetera. So Buffalo is another example in New York State. Other states are doing this too. Um, New Jersey is the first state, and so far only, but that's because Connecticut's school year hasn't started. It's the first and only state to um, integrate climate education standards across most content areas and all grade levels. And New Jersey is definitely a pioneer here, and they're our neighbor. So we should definitely be following suit. Connecticut also is passing policy. Um, California has policy, but they're piloting it in a school district in um, San Mateo, San Mateo County. And Washington State has policy. Um, It's called it's called Time, which is for climate science. But they are starting they have done interdisciplinary work. Maine has policy. Minnesota is trying to pass policy. They're trying to pass a bill that was written entirely by students on climate justice education. Um, who am I missing? Maryland, a particular county in, in Maryland is is making some headway here. Pennsylvania. Oregon? Oregon. Oregon. They, their bill did not pass, unfortunately, this year. But their bill was backed by the teachers' unions. So this is all to say that there is precedent for this. Like it's already happening in states across the country. You know, this is not just a, this is not a niche area anymore. Kids are asking for this in their schools.
0: So yeah, that's just a landscape of what's going on. (laughs) And, um, after talking about the state level, what can you say about the federal level? Which is, I know it's so much more complex. Yeah, um, at the federal
3: level, there is a push for climate ed. And that bill hold on. That bill is called Well, yeah, Climate Change Education Act. And it's been introduced a couple of times. But um, I'm no expert in the federal level. um, But what I was explaining before about the dynamic of state setting education policy we're even receiving pushback in a state like new york um it it's really difficult for something like this to happen at the federal level so things aren't are are there there are conversations happening but i'm a little bit more doubtful about that but 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 there are things within federal agencies such as noaa the national oceanic atmospheric um administration, and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration. These are federal agencies that are also helping to support state-level work um, in in various ways. And there's many other um, uh, federal agencies as well.
0: I like thinking about just the different scales of it, like federal, state, and then you know, with Community Agriculture Project, it's really about like, how can we actually tap in with our neighbors and the people that are surrounding us so closely, because resiliency happens at just like a completely different level uh, there. So totally, totally and forging forging
3: connections. And that's where I'm talking about this intergenerational power concept that um, certainly, can happen at, at at higher at higher scales, but also happens um, at the community level. And um, fostering care for your community happens through interaction and experiences um, in terms of meeting people, but also getting out and actually seeing your community in a different light, and uh,
0: that will lead to care. Yeah, and just like I love working. With, within the different communities that I'm a part of, just like taking stock of what resources are available and what what does each individual have access to that another person might not have access to and like, how can that be leveled and how can more sharing happen with that? Um, which I think I'll ask Irata to, or Ethan to prompt the question on, social justice and and how that's how that might be navigated if either one of you want
1: to so yeah i sort of wanted to add on to that and transition to like community based like how um um we think like less funded schools and schools in marginalized communities need to be included in when we create these policy changes, since they're like the most vulnerable to impacts of climate change in terms of addressing the disparities that they might face and the equitable access that they have to education and how to empower those marginalized voices so they can um, have the courage and have the understanding to keep, um, to further their, uh, their impact or the impact that they might have on, Um, addressing these issues relating to climate changes and promoting environmental justice. And for me, I think that's um, very important and getting them aware of this and creating a safe space and community to discuss these issues and providing um, access to information. But I just wanted to we just wanted to know a little bit more about your thoughts on how these um, social issues can be uh, addressed for such communities
3: sure um so there's there's some examples for example with uh, New Jersey um, the the program I was just discussing it's it's almost all content areas and all grade levels and it's funded it's five million dollars and uh, across the state which really is not a lot but it's something and so um, one of the ways that they start to address this question um, is by and it, it, it it's it's a grant program so schools apply to the grant it's an Gosh, I can't remember if it's a competitive or non-competitive grant, but anyway, schools that are in um, that are historically under-resourced or that are in environmental justice areas, and there's you know um, GIS maps um, that each state has that determine what are their their PJs, their potential environmental justice areas, um, can get a thousand dollars more than uh, other schools, um, and that's like that's one way to do it. Um, I personally don't think grant programming is equitable enough, but this is just one way that they were operating within their system to try and um, achieve some sort of equity. For example, Um, in terms of providing professional learning opportunities, which means Teachers who are in service and are actually like working in the classroom, they attend these um, professional development or professional learning um, courses throughout their education so that they're continually learning as they're teaching. Um, States have different policies, they can earn credit, they get paid to attend them, et cetera. Um, But I think providing incentives for teachers who live in and or teach in environmental justice areas or um, you know, teach in a school whose uh population is majority non-white, for example, um, you know, incentivizing specifically those teachers to attend these professional learning opportunities by paying them, you know, giving them time off, giving them credits, um would lead to more equity um, as a policy, for example. The problem with these things is are that um, oftentimes professional learning is done by uh, nonprofits. It's also certainly done like in a more um, in a more formal way. I mean it's it's all formal, but not to say that, but sometimes it is offered by the Department of Education, for example, or whatever educational board governs your state or city um, but A lot of them are uh, NGOs who might not have the funds to support a teacher financially to attend these, for example. Um, Some some teachers have to pay to attend professional learning opportunities. So removing those barriers for teachers who who represent marginally um, uh, or marginalized um, school districts and student populations is a way to achieve that. Um, But to answer your other question, about, uh, achieving social justice and the role that social justice has to play in the climate education. Um, I think that there are things like, so, like social emotional learning, um, to me is a concept that needs to guide climate education. And, um, I was just speaking with the author of a book called, um, Uh, teaching for climate justice. His name is Tom Roderick and we were talking about two concepts related to social emotional learning and that's active hope and beloved communities. So the idea of beloved communities is you know this is like this is your community and you've fostered a relationship with it and it has fostered a relationship with you and your um Your uh, orientation to the community is one of service and of care. And then the idea of active hope, I was getting to this earlier, um, is the practice of um, envisioning the future that you want and working to realize it. So to me, those are things under the social justice umbrella because students need to be learning concepts like racial equity in school and a deep understanding of the climate crisis, which maybe are social issues, but are also emotional issues. Um, So bridging those gaps is really necessary. Um, And that happens at a community level, but it also happens at like a global level in a young person's mind.
0: Yeah. And I, I love those points that you brought up because I feel like the question that Erotitude posed, there's so much that goes into these issues and it almost seems like the response is a never-ending list of options. But I really, really like those two that you brought up and I think that it's a really great um, and very possible starting point. You know, like that's something that we can all really tap into today. yeah.
3: I, I'd also like to add, because, um, Ethan, were you saying that you're part of your school's environmental optimism group, or is it activism?
2: Oh, it's activism, but optimism. Oh, okay, because I was optimism. like, that's really <laughs>
3: cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, um, that would be great. We do that's, like that's, that's... optimism, though.
3: Good, because I, got... I, I, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, and, and maybe optimism isn't, actually, no, it is the word. Um, I mean, I think a variety of feelings can, can and should guide one's approach, um, anger for sure, um, grief. Um, but I also really do think it has to be, um, it has to come from optimism. And I think solutions really do at their core have to come from a place of care and love and love, um, (laughs) my my favorite book is called all about love and the way that bell hooks defines the concept of love is when your when your spiritual growth is entwined with that of another person and in this place if your spiritual growth is entwined with that of the planet that of um your community that of your your child or if you're in the position of a mentor that of the students that you mentor or teach um and work with then that love I think is really 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 necessary to guide uh the work that comes next
2: I have chills (laughs) oh yeah for real and like adding on I feel like um when you're like when you're optimistic and like know that what you are doing for the environment and like the, the action you're taking are like creating an impact i feel like it's more motivating and like it's kind of like it what it makes you want to do more and it kind of gives you that hope that there is a solution and that um like you're contributing to the solution and it comes from a place of love that you love the environment and yeah
0: definitely like little steps to get out of that individualistic and also vacuum mentality. Certainly. That has to happen because that's what got us here in the first
3: place. Mm -hmm. Um, So we really do, we need to move away from that. We need to explore other ways of knowing communities that have been living um, in tandem and connected to and who have practiced what I just described, like the spiritual connection with the earth as entwined with yours that's been happening for thousands of years already. Um, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Um, and exploring exploring that and, and elevating those perspectives, those indigenous perspectives, is crucial here.
1: You know, I just wanted to say I love that you brought that up because it's um it's often undermined and people don't really understand like the the importance of connecting with communities that already have these, um, um, that already have these, uh, not necessarily like the way the way of, of things, the way they do things already, they already have a way of like method of life and a way of life. And it kind of reminds me of a project that I worked on before, which was about how you know, just it was similar to agriculture as well, it was how like how we think technology might impact agriculture and we kind of just talked about how it's important to acknowledge like traditional methods that that farmers used earlier so we can just sort of build on that and get their perspectives as well and I think um, it's very important to keep in mind that these communities they already have their way of life, their methods and just keep in mind they're going to have their perspectives and it's up to like it's up to the people or up to us to sort of integrate our ideology in a way that is comfortable and like matches their traditional methods and just be respectful of that as well.
0: And the idea that like the word technology doesn't need to be limited to what we've been producing in the past, whatever, 50, 100 years um technologies just because they're yeah they they don't look like what we access today it's still technology that we can apply
3: really radical radical thinking is really is really important um and this what we're we're, we're, what we're describing the concept of understanding that life hasn't only occurred since the industrial revolution. And that's only like a blink of an eye in terms of the entire global history and the entire human history is really important. And yeah, I mean, understanding that there are different ways of doing things, um, just the way of doing things because it's the most profitable is not, it's almost always certainly not the way, um, that it needs to be done in order to be sustainable.
0: for Sam well I feel like this conversation could go on for so (laughs) long and I'm so happy about all that we got to cover but um is there anybody that wants to offer some closing remarks uh for this episode
3: I I can say something if if there are young people just really quickly um if you are in the space So many people are so proud of you. And like people who are here right now and people who have been on this planet historically are proud of you. Um, And if you don't know how to get involved, there are so many diverse ways that cater to your talents. The students on our team happen to be interested in education, for example, happen to be interested in things like policy. But if you're interested in other things like, like art, and gardening or if you're interested in things like finance um, there's so many ways to get involved um, in your sphere and you don't have to match a crunchy granola personality for example you don't have to be put in a certain box in order to be part of this environmental movement Um, it's not controversial people people need to care and it's cool to show that you care. And also just allow yourself grace. And there's so many, so many massive emotions. The whole range of human emotions accompanies the learning and a deep understanding of the crisis. Um, And calling it a crisis is what it should be called. Um, That's what it is at this point. Um, Not to get into the semantics, but anyway, parting words are just understanding that Your place in the world is not defined by your job or your career, but if you are a good person and if you care about the world and you care about the more than human world and other people, that's what defines you. So if that ushers you into activism, great. If that ushers you into making change in your family, great. If it ushers you into becoming, I don't know, the president, great. But yeah, um, understanding your skill and, and where you belong is really important. So, thank you all for for inviting me here today.
2: Thank you for like speaking on all of this. It was super inspiring, informational, and I'm so glad that you were able to like come on and talk about and give us your perspective. It was really, 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 really grateful.
1: Yeah, we're so thankful for you being here and just like talking and. Um, you made some very like interesting points today that even I will like go on to ponder on and just research more about and I I really agree with you that crunchy granola bar personality and just (laughs) and just like inspiring the kids because I feel like that's what they need right now and I genuinely look forward to how this climate act progresses and what changes uh, we make as a society and seeing how that like positively impacts everyone and motivates other people as well so thank you so much for being here today
0: yes thank you thank you thank you i feel so inspired and uh along with what too said i'm looking forward to us all collectively moving forward um and contributing to this and so yeah thank you so much it was great to meet you and i'm interested in also just following your work as well um and also for anyone in our audience we are going to try and link a few of the uh you know the scoping plans and some of the other resources that were mentioned throughout this talk in case you want to explore more after this
3: yeah I'll, i'll send those to you as well um so you can have them and for listeners feel free to reach out um i'm always available
0: you can find me on linkedin Awesome. Yeah, we will link her information and to find out more about how you can get involved in your agricultural community, you can access the Community Agriculture Project at communityagproject.com. You can find us on Instagram at communityagproject. And our interns, would you like to plug yourselves?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, you can email me through ethanlu75 at gmail.com or if you prefer to like contact me through um, my LinkedIn, it's Ethan L-L-I-U.
1: Her attitude. Okay, so my email is bstabb1 at gmail.com and my LinkedIn is or Iradatu, to uh, first and last name and thank you
0: yeah thank you everyone and that that's the closing of our episode so thank you